When did you last give careful thought to your ways, to your life? When was the last time you stopped and spent an hour having a think about what are your priorities? What are you spending your time on? What are your goals? What do you hope to see achieved uh, with your life? What is it that you are actually devoting most of your time into, your energy, your money? It's important that we spend time thinking about these things from time to time because we can easily just get into the ruts of doing things and, and, and life and time just goes, goes by. And it is exactly that question that God addressed to his people in the time of Haggai. It's a, it's a small little book, but I think it's a very significant book for us uh, at this time in the life of our church. So I want you to open it up and uh, you'll find it on page 948. If you have one of the red church Bibles, page 948. I'm going to spend the next three weeks considering the message of Haggai. So let's read the first 15 verses, chapter 1 of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in purses with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountain and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, 
Because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is the word of the Lord. Now, keep this open before us as we think about this. Five times in this short book, they're commanded to give careful thought to their ways. Five times. Now, who are these people? And, and what are they doing with their lives? Well, these events happened around the 6th century before Christ. And they were a group of about 50,000 Jewish people who had lived most of their lives as exiles in Babylon. The land of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, uh, the temple in, in, in the capital building had all been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire who crushed them and carried them off into exile. And then 70 years went by. Imagine that. 70 years. That's a long time, isn't it? Many of these people had basically known, the only thing they'd known in their lives was living in Babylon. Living, growing up under the, uh, under the empire. They'd got married. They'd built houses. They'd started businesses. Uh, they'd raised their children in Babylon. They settled down. And then Cyrus took over uh, the Babylonian Empire and he gave the order that conquered people could head back to their land and could rebuild their temples to worship God uh, in order to pray for him. He was a very smart guy. He wanted to cover all his bases. Go back and build all your temples to all your various gods and get them all to pray for me, was his plan. Ezra uh, led a remnant of exiles back to the land. And Haggai and, and uh, Zechariah, two prophets that we have their letters in the Bible, were among them. These were impressive people, this remnant that had returned to the land. Think about it. They cared about God's name and honor, so much so that uh, they uprooted their lives. I mean, they'd spent so long in Babylon, and yet they were willing to kind of 
Start all over again. Leave their homes, leave their businesses, leave their farms, leave their community. And a relative small group of them, 50,000 of them, uh, basically left to return back to a land that they barely knew, which was racked with economic problems. A destroyed land, a destroyed economy to start again. Now they're impressive people, aren't they? Is that something that you'd ever think about doing yourself? And what was their motivation? Their motivation was this. They wanted to restore the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord. They were people motivated by the promises of God. Uh, They had read and heard what Isaiah and Jeremiah had said, that God would actually bring a new Messiah king that would rule over a kingdom that would would bless the whole world. They, they remembered Ezekiel's prophecy as he spoke of a new temple being built in a restored land. And so these were people motivated by the promises of God. They were motivated by the honor of God's name. And they were courageous. They, they, they walked away from their settled lives in Babylon, trekked across the lands to come to this devastated place to build the temple. Impressive people. And they made a start on the temple. But what you hear is that there was great opposition to this whole project. There were great hardships, there were great difficulties. And so the work stopped. And nothing happened for about 12 years. 12 long years. And so what were these people doing? with their lives. Well, they were, they were getting on with life. I mean, they, were, they had to, to build their homes. They had to uh, remove the rubble from the land and start plowing the land and, and putting seed into the land, start up new farms, start up new businesses. Um, they, they, they were trying to raise their children. Uh, they were trying to you know, make a nice day for the wedding day. And uh, they were just getting on with life. Trying to get established in these tough economic times. And they were living amongst the rubble of the past reminders of, of the glory days. Uh, when God's people occupied their own nation under God's rule and God's blessing. And they lived amongst the devastation and the reminders of what was past. And they got stuck. Just life was too hard. It's too difficult. They'd got distracted. They'd given up on their dreams that originally gripped their heart and, and imagination to, to make them come there in the first place. Now, I think there are some remarkable parallels uh, to their time in history and the time that we live in today. Now, the project of restoring the temple was crucial in their day. Uh, The temple was the place that symbolized God's presence. Uh, It was the way that they continued to enjoy relationship with God. It was a time where they had to continue offering animal sacrifices to atone for their sins. And all of this needed to be in place for God to fulfill his promises, for Jesus to come and enter Jerusalem, enter the temple, and to be the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, to become our Savior. Now today, though, we live on the other side of the coming of Jesus, whose death 
and resurrection is the reality to which all these things were signposts and shadows. So we're not tied today to a particular city uh, or to a building, the temple. Today, we are to be a people gripped by the command of the Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. People don't have to come to Jerusalem, to the temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. And therefore, people all over the world can get right with God simply by coming and putting their trust in Jesus, the one who can deal with their sin, the one who can restore their relationship with God. And this is the good news that we have to proclaim. Our goal is to point people to Jesus. There they can receive their pardon. There they can receive forgiveness. There they can be right with the the God who made them. And there they can enter into Christ's church. That's the agenda of the Lord Almighty today. Our work as Christians is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to gather those who are saved, and to build up Christ's church um, into maturity as we all work with our gifts and our abilities to, to, to serve so that we'll be a people that glorify God by making disciples of all nations. And so our concern is not with a temple. Our concern is with Christian churches, with gatherings of Christ followers who should be in every community, in every place, so they can manifest the glory and the presence of God in this world. So how are things going? How are things going? A few weeks ago, we thought about the global challenge, but we should think today really about the the local and the national situation. How would you best describe the situation of the Christian church today? We wouldn't be far off from calling it a ruin. A ruin. We're surrounded by many church buildings, aren't we? Many church buildings in our cities and in our towns. And yet what's the truth inside of them? Many of these churches just have small, aging congregations that are dwindling away. Quite a few are just empty and shut. We shouldn't be sort of distracted to think that really the same-sex relationship controversy is the main challenge to the Christian church today. It's not. It is much more fundamental than that. It is, it is that some of the ministers in these church buildings no longer believe the Bible is the word of God. They no longer believe in the uniqueness and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They no longer believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's true of churches in Edinburgh. Studies seem to indicate that about 2 to 3% Uh, of Scotland attend a Bible church. We are a tiny remnant in Scotland. Think about this. It means 97% of the nation of Scotland is heading to hell. It's 5 million people untouched by the gospel. For Edinburgh, you know, they say about 5% go to any sort of church, which means that there are 470,000 people in our city who are eternally and spiritually lost. 
we've been rightly concerned about the Ebola crisis in Africa. Up to the end of March, the Ebola virus has killed 10,460 people. But we're living in a city where not tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people are dying and are going to a lost eternity. And we have lots of church buildings that are empty or devoid of the gospel. And we have the precious cure. We have the remedy. We have the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We can point people to Christ as the one who can solve their a problem of guilt before God, the one who is eager to include them in his everlasting kingdom. Welcome them into God's family. And how are we responding as a church to these great challenges of having received uh, the great commission of the Lord Jesus? Are we alarmed? Are we concerned? Are we focused with clear priorities? Are we wanting to roll up our sleeves and work out how we can be more effective in making disciples as a congregation? Or are we personally stuck? Just feeling overwhelmed, discouraged, distracted. And whenever challenged, we can trot out the familiar excuses why, well, we, we can't be involved right now in, in this. My guess is that the reason most people come to Charlotte Chapel is because we do care about the Bible. We do care about our non-Christian friends and family. We do care about the lost in the city. And perhaps we can look back to a time where we knew great passion and zeal for God. We look back to those times in SU perhaps, or when we were students in CU, or when we were part of... um, uh, of YPF, uh, um, especially those, those years after we got converted. But life has moved on. Uh, responsibilities of work have grown. The needs to grow and manage our business uh, just ever seem increasing. There are bills to pay. There are, there are children to raise. There are other hobbies and interests that have grown into our lives. And, and somehow there's just not a lot of time to give to advancing the spread of the gospel or to be counted on as part of a ministry team or to be involved in leadership. Now to a people like that, the Lord Almighty says in verse 5, give careful thought to your ways. What were their ways? Well, they'd stopped engaging in the work and instead were making excuses. And the Lord was well aware of it. Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. People say, well, I know the church needs good leaders, but work is just too busy at the moment. I do want people to become Christians at work, but you have to be so careful not to offend people today, don't you? I know that I should be supporting the work of the church, but I have too many obligations at home at present. Thanks for letting me know about the opportunity to serve, but uh, you know, we love getting away to our holiday place. It's quite easy for us to find excuses that mean we simply can't be involved. And so the cause of Christ and his gospel simply struggles along, and we never make significant progress because there's insufficient people or resources, or leadership. 
But here we see God challenging their excuses with with two main arguments. Look at verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin, the Lord asks? See, evidently, it was time to make nice houses for themselves. Uh, They were happy to organize some bespoke woodwork, some paneling in their homes, and uh, they had the time and energy to make their own house nice and comfortable. Now, I don't think the Lord is against us having comfortable houses. Um, The problem here is the contrast between their house and the Lord's house. That was the issue, living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin. The rebuke here is about how these two facts reveal their hearts. See, we invest our time and our energy and our priorities on the things that we think are most important. That's the bottom line, isn't it? That's what we do. And their reluctance to finish off the job of of completing the temple was showing their lack of concern for God's presence among them and God's reputation in the world. It's quite a biting question from the Lord, isn't it? They had resources to make nice homes, energy to take care of their own businesses, but at the same time, no time for God's service, for God's house, for God's concerns. Now, what about us? What about you? At a time of great spiritual need and opportunity in our nation, is it clear to others that that we use our time and our energy and our creativity and our gifts in, a, in such a way that we're fully invested in the priorities of the spread of the gospel. Is that clear? Are we, are we focused on building up Christ's church here in Edinburgh and throughout the world? Uh, if we kept getting missionary reports from our mission partners, uh, they just kept telling us about how they were having wonderful holidays and uh, enjoying great food and great restaurants and built a really nice house and they had marvelous servants who took care of all their needs and uh, please pray on for their servant who's not feeling very well so they're not cooking their breakfast quite the right way and please pray that they'll get better now how do you think we'd be feeling as a, as a church And yet if we're writing our mission report of how we're getting on, I wonder what what would we say about our mission report of of what we're engaged in here uh, as the Lord has put us in Edinburgh. It'd be quite interesting to do that, wouldn't it? Write a wee prayer letter to uh, some supporters about the work that we're engaged in. Are we engaged in this process of helping people to love God grow people in Christ-likeness, serve Christ in his church, and going out on mission with Jesus to help others to love, grow, serve, and go. I wonder, would we be willing to uproot our lives in order to move into another community that didn't have a church in order to be the basis of a church plant? Would we be willing not to accept promotion in order to give more time to ministry in the church? Would we be willing to give up our career in order to serve him in gospel ministry full time? 
We do want these things, don't we? And yet sometimes what we wish for doesn't become concrete. Now why is it? Could it be that when things really boil down to it, instead of putting God first, we basically put ourselves first? Well, we will serve the Lord, but only when it's at a a convenient time to to us. Uh, We will give money as long as it doesn't impact our plans. Uh, We will serve at a time as long as it doesn't interfere with our own comforts or our own options. Now, of course, that's putting it very starkly, isn't it? But when we see it in the cold light of day, when we can see, uh, we can see that really if that is the case, then our priorities are more focused on the creation rather than the creator. And as we read earlier from uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus knows that we need money and clothes and food and shelter. But he urges his disciples, don't worry about all that stuff. Instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well so that's the first argument that uh, the lord makes the lord addresses their wrong priorities and the second one the lord invites them to consider their lives Uh, the new bible commentary gives the heading to this section in this way my house and your lives are in ruins this is what the Lord points out to them. Had they noticed that in their obsession with their priority advancing their own lives and their own agenda, that their lives weren't working out that well. The economy around them was in ruins. They were working hard but not seeing much profit. Verse 6, you've planted much but have harvested little. The seeds are going in the soil right now as we speak. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Inflation was eating away at their income. They were not receiving much comfort from their possessions. Uh, You eat, the Lord says, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. Doesn't that sound incredibly contemporary? I mean, we, we live in a time of great affluence. I upgraded my high definition television to have an even better high definition television that was bigger. You know, we've got more cars, bigger cars, nicer cars. We have more holidays. And yet, as a nation, we are so unsatisfied. We're not happy. Now, why is that? Well, God invited them to consider their lives. The reason God says is because he's seeking to get their attention. Verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle on the labor of your hands. Here we see the Lord Almighty bringing about economic gloom and chaos to get their attention. So here's a few questions from this passage. Um, is our own comfort of greater importance to us than the work of God? Here's another question. Are we making increasing efforts to get ahead financially but finding greater and greater disappointments in our life? And if the answer is yes, 
then it's time to turn around and get on with obeying Christ's commission of putting him first in our lives. Here's an interesting thought. Could it be that the double-dip recession, a slow economy, and the cost-of-living crisis is really God seeking to wake up our nation and to call our nation to uh, rethink its headlong pursuit of nicer homes and nicer lives apart from him and indicate that it's not working? Our priorities as a nation heading away from God is empty and, and doomed. I'm not hearing a lot of politicians talk about that, mind you. You know, we're missing out on the greatest treasure, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Christ today, can I just say, come to him. Come to Christ today. Receive his salvation. This is what the Apostle Paul said. Whatever were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Christ is so glorious. He's such a treasure that it's worth dumping everything else to grab hold of Christ by faith. And I have to say that was what was so encouraging to me uh, that in the middle of the economic turmoil a few years back, the response of the members of Charlotte Chapel who gave 1.4 million so we could buy Shanwick Place building. I thought that was absolutely amazing. It was such a practical expression in the middle of all that economic uncertainty that actually we're willing to commit to God's work in this city of Edinburgh. And now uh, we are to embark on a new giving opportunity as we seek, we think, probably around £400,000 to enable us to finish the job, to get the refurbishment done so that we can have a new center for gospel outreach, growing people into Christian maturity and glorifying God in this city. And uh, over the coming weeks, you're going to receive some letters giving you more information about that. So we've thought about the, the practical rebuke Uh, The rebuke there, but let's think about the practical repentance of verse 8. Look at verse 8. Here's the command of the Lord. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, and build the house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. So the first command of this section was give give careful thought to your ways. Second, third, and fourth go together. Go, bring, build, so that I may take pleasure and be honored. If the temple was to be built, the people had to go. They had to go up the mountains. They had to bring the timber needed for the building. And then they had to use it and build it. And the evidence of the conviction of their lives and of their repentance would be shown by their willingness to get to work. And it's hard work, isn't it? Just walking up a mountain is hard enough, isn't it? Let alone chopping down some trees and bringing timber back down the the hills with you and getting into place and start building a temple. That, that is, that's back-breaking, uh, muscle-sapping, energetic, hard work, isn't it? But a work that would show that above every other desire and every other motivation, they wanted God's name and reputation to be honored. 
They wanted to know God's visible presence among them as they sought to rebuild their lives and their community as a nation. But they wanted God at the center of it. They, wanted to, to, they showed their commitment to that by, by beginning to rework on the temple. And guess what? God takes great pleasure in that. And I look around this church and I'm amazed to see the numbers of people who work hard to maintain the life and witness of this congregation. We've got a number of leaders stepping down from elders and deacons who've worked diligently and not simply for the last five years, but some for 20 to 30 years in different forms of leadership. And doing all of this at a time of working hard in their jobs and caring for their families. And we have people who faithfully serve in different ministry areas of of our church life in amazing ways. Uh, People like Andrea Doggett, who's been in charge of the nursery for over 10 years. Just think about that. 10 years, that's amazing. Making sure there are people caring for for babies and little ones each Sunday. If any who's been on the the rotor of being involved with that... uh, you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a privilege and a challenge. But you know what? I want to say not only are these things essential for the health of, of this congregation, but it also brings great pleasure and delight to God. Look at verse 8. Go up to the mountains, bring down timber, build the house, so that I may take pleasure in it. And be honored, says the Lord. As they go to it, he takes pleasure in our work so that he would be honored. What an amazing thing it will be to hear God's praise us for our work on the final day. What an incredible thing to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. But friends, while there are many who will serve so diligently... We're in a large church, and yet it still can be quite a challenge to find people willing to serve and lead in the church. There are many important things that simply don't get done because we don't have the people or resources to make it happen. So this is an important time for us because we're looking for new elders and deacons. We're looking for new Bible study group leaders who will disciple others. We're looking for people willing to serve on ministry teams who will help us to to love God and love people, to grow more Christ-like together, to serve in Christ's body, and to go make disciples of the nations. And one of the problems has been, from a leadership side, that we've not done an adequate job, I think, of communicating our vision, our goals, shaping our ministries to work well together. Perhaps we've not been good enough at handing over responsibility to let people feel that they can shape an area Perhaps we've sapped people's wills by making it so hard to bring about change. We've not reviewed and assessed ministries for their effectiveness and fruitfulness. And that's something that the new elders and new deacons will seek to address, to align what we do, to make sure it's helping us to make and mature disciples, to make sure that people are are making progress and, and growing in their discipleship and to keep us focused as a church. So would you please pray at this crucial time the Lord would raise up the right leaders so that we'll be a church pulling in the right direction, focused on glorifying God by making disciples of all nations. And that we do that in such a way that God would be honored in the city. That's our great desire and goal. So what was the response in Haggai's time? Well, verses 12 to 15 
show us how they were spiritually stirred up by the word of God. Look at verse 12. Zerubbabel is a hard name to say. Uh, and I should have practiced with my lips earlier today. Zerubbabel. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. What was the result? Well, they were all stirred up by the Spirit of God. They were all stirred up by hearing the voice of God through the message of the prophet Haggai. And the people showed their fear of the Lord. They showed that they wanted the Lord to be number one in their lives by obeying the word of the Lord. And so they got to work on the house of the Lord Almighty. And as they worked, this was the amazing promise that God gave them. I am with you. This is so encouraging. When we look at the ruin of our nation, we look at the spiritual mess that we're in, and we're only a tiny group, it's an overwhelming thought. How on earth can little Charlotte Chapel make any impact, can it make any difference in this city, let alone in this nation? Well, only with this promise, the Lord Almighty says, I am with you. The Lord Almighty is with us. I am with you. Well, I guess I can press forward there. Because I, I, I'm not relying on my puny resources. I, I'm not merely relying on the resources in this room. I'm relying on the the power and enabling presence and the grace and the mercy and the glory and the greatness of the Lord Almighty who is with us. How amazing is that? How brilliant is that? Now, does that promise ring any bells to you? Well, it's the same promise that uh, Joshua uh, received as he was called to embark on, on taking the, the promised land. Uh, Joshua chapter 1, it says this, the Lord says to him, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And it's exactly the same promise, isn't it, that the Lord Jesus gives in the Great Commission. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely, what? I am with you, always, to the very end of the age. So go, bring, build, sums up what our Lord Jesus calls us to do. Unless we go to people, 
how can we bring them to the Lord Jesus to become his disciples? Unless we bring them to the Lord Jesus, how will they become part of his eternal spiritual temple and to be built so that he might take pleasure in it and be honored? I, I just think this is an immensely exciting time to be at Charlotte Chapel. The need is so great. The opportunity is vast. 470,000 people have, have not gathered any sort of church. And the Lord has been pleased to give us bigger, better building from which we can engage in the Great Commission as we seek to glorify God. Will we obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we seize this opportunity in our lives to do something of eternal significance? To be engaged in a work that is not in vain? Will we seek first His kingdom and his righteousness will you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness only you can answer that what are your priorities what are your life goals what are you putting your energy into? What are you putting your creativity into? What are you putting your effort into? What are you putting your leadership into? What are you putting your service into? And is it, does it compare with the glory of this project? Of what God wants to accomplish in the world? I wonder if this is going to be a day that stirs and mobilizes us as a whole congregation to be a people who honor God and seek his glory. Let's pray.